Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Eureka, the show that gets under the skin of science in such a good way. As we invite a new expert every week to help us answer one of science's most interesting questions as decided by us. I'm Rick Edwards. And I'm Dr. Michael Brooks. What have you got for us this week? You know how we get under the skin of science? In a good way, yes. In a good way. Say it every week. So I'm, I'm doing that. Uh, this week, we're kind of doing it properly, fully, literally exploring something that's been bothering me since the mid-90s. Okay, so that's before quite a lot of our listeners were born. Probably is. Um, it, that's sort of quite bad, and I've never felt older in my life, but... I, I wrote about this back in 1997 for The Independent, and it's still an issue. Right. And it's 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 basically happened to me, right? So when I went to um, Guinea-Bissau in West Africa to teach physics for a couple of years, yeah. I was like the physics teacher, and I went into the school laboratory, which is like really run-down, nightmare, like useless place. All around the walls, there were pictures of the like old white guys in wigs. So Isaac Newton, yeah. you know, Robert Hooke, all those guys, you know, Lavoisier, there was Darwin, you know, he wasn't wearing a wig, but, um, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, oh, white guys. And I suddenly thought, this is madness. Like, what, you know, you can't use these people as a way of like helping and encouraging young African students to, to learn science. That surely doesn't work at all. And so then I became kind of obsessed by the fact that like the history of science is all these like white blokes and yeah. and so when i came back i started sort of, you know trying to look into it and say you know is this a problem is this and i discovered it was basically and discovered that there were very few people who are sort of cognizant cognizant of that thing and i'd, I'd not really clocked it until that moment so i started sort of looking into it and, and writing about it basically why is is science like so white mm. Is it is it worth talking about? Are you comfortable talking about your racial heritage? Because I think people might not okay, so, realise. Yeah, so I am, you know, by blood quarter West Indian, quarter Jamaican. So my yeah. grandfather was born in, in Jamaica. Yeah. Uh, and came over via uh, Harlem to Edinburgh and trained actually as a doctor and uh, and became, you know, so, so he sort of, you know, became successful as a, as a sort of member of British society. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been effectively raised as white, I would say, um, in that, you know, my own father left when I was one. I was raised by my mum, who's white, and by my stepfather, who was white as well. So I had no sort of sense of, of, of any black heritage at all. So mm. that's been something mm. I've sort mm. of explored over the years. And, yeah. and I think culturally, I'm very white, you know, even though I don't look white as such. So for me, you know, going into science wasn't an issue. Like it never felt like I was the yeah. wrong yeah. colour to be in science or, or the wrong racial background or anything like that, because I never really felt... Of, you know that I wasn't fitting in. Fundamentally, yeah. you sort of you present white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To the point where I remember when my house got burgled, and uh, a policeman came around, and he was it was like going through his checklist of you know questions, and then he he got to the like, ethnicity and race questions, and he said white, and just said it out loud as he ticked his box, and I was like, hang on, no, <laughs> and I saw I had to, I had to, and he looked at me like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just like, uh, yeah, I guess. Oh, you mean yeah. so, sort of middle class and live in quite a nice house there? Must be white. Is that, is that what it is? 
Anyway, yeah. so so yeah, so it's it sort of wasn't an obstacle to me, but what I discovered was it actually is a massive obstacle, and race is a, is a big issue and an obstacle uh, for science uh, and for kids who want to get into science. So that's what I want to explore today. Much of science revolves around empirical observation, which we like to think of as unbiased, factual, and fair. But unfortunately, that isn't true. Observation is subjective, as everything we see is influenced by what we already think. Amongst other topics, this episode we're going to discuss the race gaps in scientific knowledge, the continual exclusion of indigenous people in conservationism, and the devastating implications of exclusionary behaviour in the healthcare sector. This week, we're asking, why is science so white? Our expert today is going to be uh, a woman called Angela Saini, mm. who, uh, she's a science journalist. Uh, both of us know her work because I remember lending you the book, which yeah. I never got back, by the way. No, I've still got it. Yeah, yeah. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> I mean, she's great. She, she's a really meticulous researcher, but she's also a beautiful writer. And um, and she's sort of quite fearless. Like she does books yeah, yeah, that really yeah. matter. She takes on big subjects. Yeah. So like her first book, I think it was her first book, was called Inferior. And it was about women yeah. in science and in, in society. And then she wrote this book about race called Superior, which is fantastic. Really, really good book. That's the one I've got. Yeah, yeah that, it's mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called Superior, The Return of Race Science. And it's quite you know, controversial. And she has a new book coming out in the spring, which is called The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule. I mean, she's not. She's going for it. I like it. I like it too. You know, I've met Angela once. Do you know in what context? No. University Challenge. Oh. The uh, the like the sort of you know like celebrity version. Um, She was on. I think she went to UCL, didn't she? Uh, Is it UCL? Okay. Uh, And the only question in my mind at the moment is: Did she beat you? Absolutely hammered us. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, It was. I mean, it was. It was in in some ways. It was beautiful to to watch. Right. Like, we got annihilated. Oh, really, like, that, properly. I mean, that properly. pleases me so much. I don't, I yeah, couldn't yeah, even yeah, tell yeah, you yeah. why. Yeah. Well, I know why. Because you like to win. Yeah. <laughs> I like to win. <laughs> this was it, not even like, it was so bad that Paxman felt slightly sorry for us at the wow. end. Wow. Paxman never feels sorry for no. anyone. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. So that's good. Who else was on your team? Uh, so it was me, it was Dan Jones, oh, okay. who's one of my best friends, historian, very smart, um, but no, not, not in this context. Uh, <laughs> and then a mm, a rower and a classical, like a clarinetist or something. Oh. Um, Who and selected the team? It's, it's like the the sort of, I don't know, like University Challenge. They just sort of assemble it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so it's nothing. So it's sort of coincidence that me yeah. and Dan were on it. Well, we obviously spoke. We're like, have you been asked to do this? Um, and we're like, yeah, okay, we're going to give it a go. And how far did you get? Did you Do you do like quarterfinals and semifinals? No, we, and we, we, we played, oh, we played Angela's team. We got knocked out. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, when I did it, we got through to the semifinals of the, the professionals. Uh, yeah. Uh, have, I mean, I, have I told you about that at all? No, but I think we probably better move on, aren't we? That's enough. Leave that. that for another time. Yeah. But what I will say is the rower and the clarinetist genuinely didn't speak. <laughs> and that didn't help. <laughs> didn't help. I'm not saying that we would have won by any stretch of the imagination, but please contribute something. <laughs> Let's hope they're listening. Yeah. Well, I don't think that it felt like they were a big fan of me. Um, was she a clarinetist? I actually don't know. Something like, you know, that sort of might have been the cello, whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but amazing, given that she was a mute. <laughs> okay, so what was the first thing you asked, Angela? So I uh, I wanted to know, like, because we come, like, we are, you know, Western, and we think of science as part of our culture, really. So the, the concept of Western science has become equivalent to modern science, you know. So I mm. wanted to know whether science has always been, you know, a white Western thing. It depends on how you define science. So I like to define it in the broadest way possible, which means that early farmers, agriculturalists, people who were, you know, creating the recipes that we use today, developing the tools that we use, uh, building the houses, (laughs) building settlements, hunting, gathering, all of that is science to some degree. It involves understanding the world and building a better appreciation of how it works. Um, So in that sense, 
science is universal. But when we think about science today in the 21st century, we're generally talking about modern Western science, which developed around the time of the Enlightenment. So there have always been cultures. The Greeks are just one ancient culture that had scientific and medical traditions, um, very sophisticated ones all over the world. But modern Western science that emerged in Europe has set the kind of template for how science is done today, the empirical method, um, the establishment of science, that's where that comes from. So, yeah, it's interesting. We, we think of science as, as basically the tradition of using the empirical method, don't we? That's kind of the um, almost to the extent at school where you had, you know, like apparatus, method, or like yeah, what, was, yeah. what, was the, what was it? So, I remember AIM. Aim, um, apparatus. I don't know. I don't know. Method, I did it that way. Results, conclusion. Yeah, something like yeah. That's that, how you're it? supposed to write it. Up, yeah, you're it? supposed to. And you yeah, start with yeah. some question like a hypothesis that you're going to test. Oh yeah, maybe hypothesis and, aim. Yeah, but that's it. Like fundamentally, yeah, like hypothesis, yeah. test it yeah. through experiments and see if it's correct. Yeah, your idea. Yeah, and I guess that is just one limited way of thinking about science. I think it is a very sort of limited way. I mean, it is a lot of, in some ways it is, you know, that that's a good thing to use, mm. but it's not all of science. It's not everything. And the, and the Greeks, you know, from whom, like in the West, we sort of claim this inheritance of science from the Greeks effectively. And the Greeks weren't, you know, weren't all that in every sort of case. You know, there's a lot of, um, well, I mean, for a start, there was stuff going on like before the Greeks were doing things in China and in India and in, in um, you know the Middle East, you know there was all kinds of stuff going on all over the place. It wasn't just the Greeks, and um, and you know Islamic scholars were doing experiments and drawing conclusions from them. So that wasn't just an exclusively Greek idea. So so we sort of made it feel quite sort of like you know one dimensional in some ways. But um, things like you know the. We learn in school, like William Harvey worked out the circulation of the blood in 1628. Mm. And actually in the second century BC, um, Chinese scholars had laid it all out. You know, it was all like there in, in quite you know, detail. And we sort of think, oh, you know, that was a, you know, an English, uh, English physician worked it mm. all out first. And that's just, you know, literally the, the knowledge that we inherited but it doesn't mean other cultures weren't doing exactly the same thing, you know, and thousands of years before. So, so, so out of interest, like, how is the scientific education or the, or the education around the history of science different in China, say? Because presumably they're not mentioning William Harvey, are well, they? Well, I, I don't actually know, but I hope they not. can't be. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that would be an absolute. I don't know, mark but off. the interesting thing is that, like, you have so so. I know, um, like, there were African technologists who basically made um, like, you know, blast furnaces to make carbon steel. Um, I think it was like, you know, it was sort of somewhere around 2000 years ago or 1500 to 2000 years ago. Wow. They were making, and we found sort of, you know, the evidence, we found the furnaces, we found the, the materials and, um, and they'd basically done a sort of technology that we invented in the mid 19th century. And, and it's like, Oh, okay. You know, so, but I, I can guarantee you that in schools in you know in probably in exactly in the place in Africa where that is that that invention happened, they don't learn about that. They probably just learn the you know the kind of you know, this Western, was developed in the yeah, 19th century. This is, yeah, 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 and, yeah, and you know a lot. Why, of that. Would you believe an old white man? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and, and it's really interesting. So there's um you know, and the Greeks, of course, you know, we talk about them their sort of you know incredible innovations and, and thinking and everything, but they got a lot wrong. Like you know, nobody ever mentions the fact that that actually the the stuff that Aristotle said about you know uh, how light travels or you know how we see things. He said you know that there's a, a, a sort of ray emanates from the eye and that's how we see things. Mm. And that's sort of glossed over. It's like oh well you know it was difficult times and you know that was uh, listen, that was all 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 anyone could come up with. It's not. I'm all always there. saying Aristotle was thick. <laughs> I mean, it's just like you know he he's was, a thick guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. <laughs> Basically, there was a guy um, called um, Al Haytham, an Islamic scholar, in the sort of uh, around ten uh, hundred. So you know, at the time of our sort of Battle of Hastings sort of you know mm -hmm. era, um, and he started basically saying Aristotle got all this wrong, and um, we need to rethink like you know all this stuff about optics and everything else. And he got the rumours are that he got into a lot of trouble. 
and and were sort of banned and put under house arrest, um, you know, for for basically dissing Aristotle so much. Mm. And um, and it turns out he was put under house arrest, and and but house arrest meant he could just use his house as a laboratory. So he sat down and worked it all out and and did experiments and did hypotheses, and he produced what is acknowledged as the the book on optics, like the first book on how light travels and how we see what we see. And and he said, you know, it's like hitting the eye, and sort of worked out all the theories of optics and how you have refraction and reflection and all this kind of stuff. Um, and that was used then sort of by English scholars a couple of hundred years later once his work was translated. And they were like, oh, yeah, this is really good. And actually, there was a guy, a philosopher called Roger Bacon, who used it and said, oh, you know, all this understanding of geometry and optics, we can use this to kind of, you know, create amazing art and, and all this kind of stuff by which we will um, subdue the Arab infidels. You know, <laughs> he literally got it from the Arabs. You know, it's just just sort of ridiculous. So we've always had this history, I think, of turning things around and saying, you know, all right, well, that's ours now. And, uh, you know, it, it's sort of... It's, it's a, but not only that's ours now, but also, and you never came up with this. Yeah, yeah, so because you can just that. like write it out of history. So we just don't mm. learn it, basically. Mm. And, and all this stuff sort of gets forgotten. But we know now that, you know, the Chinese and Indian and, and uh, Middle Eastern scholars were, were doing science and doing experiments effectively and drawing conclusions from those experiments about how the world actually works. So, so science is, is definitely not just, you know, a, a sort of product of Greek thinking. No. So looking at empirical science, which I think it probably is reasonable to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And you you rely on testing your your hypotheses by doing experiments, and then you can arrive at conclusions that then will inform what the rest of us will come to sort of regard as being facts about the world. That's sort of how it works, isn't it? Um, And... The hope is, you're like, well, that's going to be bias-free. But I'm assuming that the reality is it's not bias-free. <laughs> no, I mean, it never is. So this is one of the great myths we get taught about science, is that science is, is you know, is a way of looking at the world entirely objectively and, and you know, free of bias. And that's why the Royal Society has their, this, you know, their, their motto is nulla in verbia. It's like, take no one's word for it. So you're, you just do an experiment. You don't have to listen to what anybody else says. And actually, Al Haitham had the same thing. So he he wrote in his book that, that um, he said it's important to be um, criticising premises and exercising caution in drawing conclusions, not follow prejudice and take care in all that we judge and criticise, that we seek the truth and not be swayed by opinions. So like science has always had this sort of lofty, mm goal to be like completely sort of objective but, but it's done by human beings like i say if there's one thing i know it's that the it, it's not enough to say i'm aware that there are going to be biases that's one thing but then actually avoiding your own biases is is really difficult really difficult Didn't and Feynman say something quite good about this he said something like the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you not the easiest person to fall. <laughs> yeah, it's good. He was it's, so good at things yeah, like that, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. right. And, and the point is, science is biased, and science is always going to be biased. But if you've got, you know, only one group, basically, you know, controlling science or, you know, dominating science, that means there are going to be biases that come from the fact that it's that one group rather than... Kind of know, systemic bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so you know, that's the danger that we've got, really. Um Anyway, so I sort of I asked Angela to explain what we mean when we say there is bias in science. It's difficult when we're talking about things like mathematical theories or equations to say that this is biased in a some fundamental way. But what we can say is what motivated certain fields of science. So for example, statistics, the modern field of statistics is very much driven not to say the statistics themselves are, you know, the equations themselves or the formulae themselves are biased, but the the field itself was driven by a eugenics movement very heavily in the early 20th century. Many of the pioneers in statistics were eugenicists. And the reason that they were developing this field of study is because they wanted to understand the differences between humans and how to measure who they considered you know, the fittest and the least fittest, who should survive and who shouldn't survive in the human race. So whether or not the outcome or the theories themselves or the maths itself is biased, I think is very difficult, especially when we're talking about very, very theoretical subjects. I think that it's 
it's very difficult to make that case. But what we can interrogate is why do we choose to study what we study? What purpose does it serve? Yeah, so I mean, ultimately, what Andrew is saying is that the questions that science is asking come from one perspective, and it's the perspective of those who, who get to ask. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, you know, if you're in control of the whole situation, you will obviously ask the questions that interest you, as we yeah. do on this podcast. Yeah, yeah It's exactly like, no, th- this is ours, and we're going to do what we want yeah. to do. Science's most interesting questions, <laughs> yes. a.k.a. the ones that we want answering. Exactly. <laughs> so, and, so this is a huge issue when you've got sort of so little engagement in science in, in, in in many sort of minority groups, you know, in a multicultural society, it should be sort of, you know, representative. But actually, Mm. you know, I'm going to fire some stats at you, but this basically starts at school. Like, you know, if you've got a school laboratory that's got a picture of loads of white men, like this is what a scientist looks like. This is effectively what you're saying. This is what a scientist looks like. And, you know, if you don't sort of fit in with that, then you're automatically going to think, oh, maybe this isn't for me. So, um, so, you know, when we learn about Archimedes and Pythagoras and Newton and Hooke and all that lot, you know, they're, they're sort of there right front and center in your mind of like, okay, okay. So this is scientists. They're emblematic of what a scientist looks like, what a scientist is. And sadly, it's kind of still the same. So amazingly, um, well, I mean, let me start with the school kids. So one of the first things that I discovered about this is the sort of massive underrepresentation and lack of achievement in black British kids in our schools. And the last year, or maybe a couple of years ago now, King's College London did a study. And at age 10, 18% of British black children are interested in a career in science. And that's higher than the 13% of British white children, mm-hmm. right? And by the time they get to age 14... You've got 46% of the white students are going into the higher tier of science. So they're doing like the the highest level of science, whereas actually it's only 28% of the black British students. So so they're already already dropped behind. Then you've got 12% of white British students achieving the highest level, 5% of the black British students. And it's also true of the Bangladeshi is also like 5%. So, so there's this massive sort of drop off in achievement that, that doesn't tie in with the sort of ambition when they're like 10 mm-hmm. years old. And the, basically, you know, when people have looked into this, they've said um, what we see uh, so often is, A, you know, I'm not like scientists that I see. You know, I, I don't see a scientist who looks like me. Therefore, I don't want to be that. Uh, the other thing you've got is uh, teachers having exactly the same unconscious biases so there's been teachers who've come out and said, do you know what, I've, I've literally been asked for help by black kids and I've sort of said to them, you know, that's not really your strength, is it? And there's a guy called Naira Chamberlain, who's like one of the top mathematicians in this country. He's a Jamaican-born mathematician. He's a brilliant guy. Like He's like a total force of nature, amazing guy. Uh, when he told his uh, teacher when he was like 13 years old that he wanted to be a mathematician, his teacher just laughed at him and said, really, you're more of a boxer. Christ. And, and and he sort of talks quite openly about this because it's quite important, you know, mm. to hear that you know teachers can have these sort of unconscious biases that black kids, you know, are better at sports. Doesn't even sound that unconscious. It's quite a conscious bias. <laughs> I mean, it's quite a conscious bias. Yeah. And uh, and you know, I've, I've I've heard other teachers say, you know, they've sort of confessed effectively that like when the Asian kids come to them and say they want help because they want to go and study medicine, they go and help them in the library. When the black kids say the same, they just sort it's not really going to happen for you and so you know you'd think that wouldn't be the case but actually you know there are there are you know clear-cut examples of this happening so it's sort of quite important so it's so important it makes it so clear why representation matters yeah yeah and and it's so frustrating that we still it feels like still have a sort of debate about that. It's so amazing. So, so you know, and once you get up to the level of actually being a scientist, right? So you've got um, uh, twenty eighteen and nineteen are the statistics I've got. So one point eight of science technology, one point eight percent science technology, engineering and maths academic staff in our universities, age thirty four and under. So the younger staff, one point eight percent are black. They're mostly in biology because in physics and chemistry, the proportion of black research, young re- black researchers stands at 0% because they just round it down and it rounds down to zero. Um, so that's, you know, just sort of a bit mad. So the UK has 10,560 white science professors and 65 black science professors. I mean, 
I, I just I don't, I don't know what to say. Like I mean, it's not. This is not the worst thing about it. But something that is true is I'm not surprised either. You just go, yeah, but that's yeah. Certainly, my experience, limited experience of sort of academia and science yeah. is is exactly that. So there's 575 chemistry professors working in UK universities. How many black? I mean, ten. One. Fuck off. <laughs> and when he found out about this, he was quite saddened, he said. He didn't realise he was the only one. So he said, Professor Robert McCoy of the University of Nottingham, he basically became a professor about 15 years ago and just didn't realise he was literally a unicorn, you know, in in science, in chemistry mm. at least. So, so, you know, that's because you get this attrition right from the start, you know, right from school time. So there's very, very few coming through. And you get, um, you know, people are trying to do stuff about it. So the Royal Society of Chemistry is working really hard to try and sort of improve this. But, you know, you've still got... This... Doesn't sound like they're doing particularly well. Well, they've only just started. <laughs> okay, fine. So when I did the article back in 97, I contacted the Royal Society and said, you know, give me some stats on, on you know, black professors or black academics. And they said, we don't have any. Like, we literally weren't taking any stats on ethnic um, origins of, of, of Royal Society professors and, and everything else. So, so, you know, at least people are starting to sort of mm. do the numbers now. So there was a guy um, called Chris Jackson, have you ever come across him? He was a University of Manchester professor and uh, he was the first black guy to front the uh, Royal Institution Christmas Lectures. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I've, I've never met him, but yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he did that. That was a couple of years ago. Um, he's since left academia because of racism that he encountered. He's just had enough. So that's a, another one gone. And this has consequences because if you don't have those voices in academia, then, you know, that sort of does make a difference to what kind of problems and issues and questions that you're tackling in academia you know, and, and in scientific research generally. But I guess the, the classic examples of this will be around disease prevention. I'm sure if you were to compare the sort of response to COVID and COVID-19 to uh, Ebola, say, yeah, yeah. You'd be, I imagine you'd be pretty horrified because it's just a question of like, it, Immediacy, isn't it? Yeah. It was almost like, you know, well, you know, that's yeah, a, that, that's quite a long yeah. way. Yeah, I mean, away, if you yes. look at the history of malaria research, it's a yeah, really good yeah. example of like, it's not really a thing that we're that bothered about, you know. And and I imagine there was probably quite some, you know, work had to be done to persuade people to do sickle cell. I mean, that wouldn't yeah. have been, you know, initially something that came onto the agenda. So, um, so the, you know, it has consequences, this kind of, you know, the sort of the whole in, 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 uh, in our sort of you know makeup of science, if you like, yeah, and and then um, there's a there's a really unpleasant history of using non-white people as experimental subjects when people don't want to carry those things out on on white people. Yeah, yeah, like the the Tuskegee uh, syphilis study uh, that was done in in, uh, in the US in the 1930s and 40s, I think it was, mm. um, or went on for a long time actually. Um, and then you know the British experiments on Indian soldiers during World War Two. Yeah, I mean, <sighs> I mean, I genuinely need I need a break. Actually, <laughs> uh, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll come back and we'll discuss uh, conservation, clinical trials, and we'll try and answer today's question: Why is science so white? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we're back. I've rallied. <laughs> it's depressing. Um, tell me about biases in science. So basically, you know, you're in the position where you're like, you want to do an experiment. And for instance, you know, the kind of colonial history of some countries allows you to treat some groups of people as less than human. You know, like, you know, you can be experimental animals, effectively. Mm-hmm. So so the, the British military scientists basically sent hundreds of Indian soldiers into gas chambers and exposed them to mustard gas. And, you know, and this was sort of, you know, scientists seem to consider this okay to do. Um, you know, lots of them got burned. There was no follow-up on them either. You know, it was mm. like, you know, how are you 10 years down the line or anything like that? It was just like, that. you know, that's the, that's the kind of thing. And then the, like the Tuskegee study that I mentioned, 600 black men for 40 years were basically used to develop a vaccine for the, for the virus, for, for syphilis. But the majority of them were left untreated. Uh, they didn't... Um, they didn't get paid. Uh, they were basically sort of, you know, put in this place. They were not even given penicillin when when that became available. It was like they were just left to kind of have syphilis so that they could be studied. And they thought they were already in a treatment program. So they they were basically there because they thought they were getting treatment, but actually they were just being, you know, observed and and um, and and experiments were done on them that just wouldn't have been done on white people. Yeah, you know, and uh, it was. You think this is a sort of mentality that has gone away and surely, you know, we don't do that kind of thing. But literally in 2020, I mean, I'm sort of laughing at this because it's so awful. There was a French uh, medical uh, scientist, research scientist on TV, basically said, we need to do a study on you know, COVID and, and how it spreads and how bad it is. Um, but we don't want like people's pe- healthcare, for healthcare workers, but we don't want the PPE stuff getting in the way of our results and everything. So maybe we could do this in Africa where they don't really have the PPE. And he's like saying this on a, on a debate on, on, on TV. You know, the, that same mentality is still, still there. And he went on to say something like, oh, you know, we've done it elsewhere on studies on AIDS. Like prostit- we've used prostitutes in Africa as a, as a way of studying the AIDS virus, as if that was sort of okay. Like, so clearly this is fine. Because... <laughs> but, you know, if, if you do it in, in like developed nations, then the PPE sort of gets in the way of your scientific results. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so you don't want to do that. And actually Didier Drogba uh, responded to this and like saw it on TV and like said this is like the most awful thing I've ever heard and demanded an apology sort of straight away. I've always loved Drogba. I mean, he's great. He's one he? of the greats. He is one of the greats as a person as well yeah. as a footballer. yeah. yeah. And I've I've been in meetings actually where uh, scientists have talked about oh you know the population explosion and how we're going to you know feed uh, all these people and, and you know what one of the things that gets talked about uh, sort of as if it's okay to just sort of bring it up straight away is like well we need you know population control in Africa and they sort of say it like you know well you know if the Africans stopped you know having so many children we wouldn't have this problem and it's just these sort of mm. Attitudes are still there under the surface in in science because there's been so you know so little voice from uh, anything other than white scientists. It's the fact that they they're so comfortable both thinking and saying this stuff. Yeah, so because it kind of so... goes unchallenged because you're you're in an environment where yeah. no one's where people are used to hearing. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. It's sort of unquestioned assumptions in a way. What do we know about science that is outside of the Western canon? So we know that actually there are different ways of trying to understand and work with the world. So this is something I asked Angela about. 
It's very difficult. I just interviewed this brilliant indigenous scientist recently, Jessica Hernandez, who works in the US. And she's found it very difficult, even as a scientist, working with other scientists, to kind of press her worldview on them and to help them see the natural world a little bit differently. Where she grew up in South America and with her family background, she was explaining that she has a very different relationship to the natural world from the way that in Western culture people have a relationship to the natural world, which is which tends to be one of dominance and the natural world is kind of lower down. Whereas in her worldview, the natural world is part, we are part of the natural world. We don't have any particular special claim to it, that we have a different relationship to it. And that um, is very difficult for some researchers to accept when we're so used to, for example, testing on animals or riding roughshod sometimes over, over the environment around us in order to achieve the outcomes that we want. Yeah, I mean, we talked a bit about this in our endangered animal episode, didn't we? Yeah. Um, because yeah. within conservation, indigenous voices have historically just been totally ignored yeah. and, and marginalised. And interestingly, and topically, um, I was having this same argument with a bozo on Twitter. <laughs> Tell uh, me how this, you feel about this him. This week. Um, I, I presume it's a him. The, of course it's a him. Uh, yeah, just making the point about don't make the false distinction between humans and nature. Yeah. We're, we are part of nature. Yeah. It's a continuum. Yeah. Don't behave as if it isn't. Yeah, and that is a mindset that actually comes from a very sort of 18th century Christian mindset. You know, there's a passage in the Bible where it says God has given man dominion over nature. And it's sort of that, you know, taken to the extreme, if you like. It's like, you know, we're in news charge. news for you guys. There isn't a God. He hasn't given you dominion. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And and so we're in this sort of position where we've got a, a scientific culture, which we've kind of embraced into our culture, where mm. you know, we sort of think, oh, science will solve this, or science will solve that, or science knows how to reduce this problem down. And you get this, in, as you say, in, con in conservation, and you sort of ignore indigenous knowledge and, and, or indigenous approaches to nature, where you sort of think of yourself as a partner with nature and, and not some it's not some unequal sort of uh, situation and um, actually I, I read some stuff that Jessica Hernandez had, had written because I hadn't heard about her until I talked uh, talk with Angela and um, it's really interesting she was so, sort of saying that how hard it's been for her to work with scientists and become somebody who teaches scientists because her worldview is so different and she comes from a real sort of different place and she said she'd been really diminished by researchers and teachers that she's worked with who just think they can't deal with the way that she approaches it because it doesn't fit with the sort of mm. Western scientific approach. And she's having to sort of, you know, re-educate people that this isn't a sort of ignorant, naive and sort of inferior way of looking at science, but actually maybe it's a better way to do the science. Yeah. So, yeah, she's... Well, certainly, I mean, it's, a, it's, just, it's just different. Yeah. And it might... But it doesn't you know, mean that It might it's... not lead you to try and eradicate yeah. everything. You yeah. Know? So, you know, you don't see... So I think in her cultural background, you know, you don't just sort of dis... You know, you don't pull up a weed and throw it away. You know, you see it as a displaced entity, effectively, and, and you sort of think about where it came from and why it's there and, you know, and, and try and look at the bigger picture of it, really. Because I think in, in lots of... I think I'm right saying this. In lots of native and indigenous languages, you don't even have a word for conservation. No, because that's, that's right. not the... Because again, conservation sort of Im still implies dominion. Like, okay, yeah, we're going to we're going to pick this thing yeah. to conserve yeah. or try to conserve. Yeah. Whereas it's a kind of, I guess, it's just a more holistic approach. Yeah, and our sort of reductionist approach has been like, oh, you know, let's develop really brilliant crop science so we can produce, you know, massive amounts of food really efficiently. And we you know, end up with this monoculture situation where, you know, we're basically leaching the soil and, and destroying all the nutrients because we sort of thought that the scientific approach to it is just to kind of go big and, mm -hmm. and find ways to be more efficient. I actually read a thing, um, it's in Science This Week, uh, about, you know, our use of heavy machinery. And now tractors have got so big that they're actually, com they're bigger than heavier than any land animal that's ever been, like including all the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And they're compacting the deep soil, not just the surface soil, they're compacting deep soil. 
And they're forecasting like 20% reduction in crop yields in years to come just because of these tractors that are going over the ground. Crushing everything. Crushing all the gaps between soil particles. So, you know, roots literally can't get get hold of anything and can't, you know, so, so you just kind of, you know, it, it's sort of not, you wouldn't say, oh, you know, that's a problem of, of white science. But it's, a, it's a, indicative of an approach where you're not thinking maybe in in ways that other groups might be able to sort of bring in a sort of new dimension of, of thinking about how to, how to do science. And, and it's indicative of a sort of arrogance, I think. Isn't yeah. It? And, and kind of just belief that what you're doing is correct. Yeah, that's sort of, it is arrogance. You're, it is that sense yeah. of, you know, of course, it's not really questioning yourself. Really, yeah. You know, not really saying oh, we're going to maximise this. Yeah, yeah, and we know how to do it because we do science, and mm. science is you know unquestionably brilliant, mm. and and it's not always applicable. No, and we're big fans of science. I love huge science, fans of science, but we acknowledge yeah. um, on a regular basis that <laughs> science really fucks stuff up quite a lot as well. <laughs> so just you know, to to summarise, coming from one worldview is is problematic. Yeah, but when we talk about race in science it's not just that the science as a as a whole it can go down to an individual level so it can it can affect you know people in a day-to-day way yeah yeah so so i mean there's been a lot said for instance about you know in clinical trials you know of medicines who are you testing these things on and you know who's who's turning up for the trials who's able to access the trials angela had something to say about that There's been this big movement to making clinical trials more inclusive. We have to be very careful here because the human race is one of the most homogeneous species on the planet. We are not that different. Drugs tested on white people still work on black people and brown people. So we have to be very mindful before we cross over that line and start saying, if drug trials aren't inclusive of everyone, then the drugs won't work. That's just not true. It doesn't really matter where they're tested. As long as you have very large population sizes, obviously, because there's a huge amount of individual difference between us. In fact, that's where the majority of human difference lies at an individual level. The bigger issue with racism in medicine is how people are treated. Um, It's at that level of the nurse or the doctor who doesn't trust the black pregnant patient when she comes in and says she's suffering who doesn't believe that she's in as much pain as she says she's in. That's one of the reasons why black maternal mortality figures are so skewed in countries like the UK. And I know this myself. When my mum had breast cancer a few years ago, my friend who works for the NHS said, make sure you and your sister go with your mum to every single appointment. Make sure you're there every day that she's in hospital. Because if they hear you speaking good English and they hear that you're middle class, she will get a different level of care. And it really did. I mean, my mum's English is not bad. She's lived in the UK for more than 40 years, but she's an immigrant and she's brown and it does make a difference. I mean, it's very believable, isn't it? I mean, I've looked into things like uh, pain medications and people can end up believing that there's, you know, there's some sort of, racial difference so you, so you get things passed down through generations and this happens in science as well this sort of assumption of like oh what we learned in the past is still true and maybe we're not questioning that enough so i mean in general science you get you know professor will tell student something that they learned when they were 20 years old and have never really questioned and it gets, sort of gets passed down and things like this can be literally like you know certain ethnic groups feel pain differently or express pain differently. And um, you end up with sort of you know, different ways of being treated in healthcare. So, so those kinds of questions would probably be questioned if you had, you know, the professor talking to a black student saying, oh, yeah, black people feel pain differently. Maybe the, you know, the, the black student would say, mm, mm. <laughs> not, not sure that's true. But, but, you know, if you don't have enough of that kind of input, then these mm. things just sort of, you know, promulgate. But there are literally like health differences between racial groups. So like in the US, it's particularly there's big problems with the African-American population have higher heart disease rates, higher diabetes. I came across this paper that said an African-American man in Harlem is less likely to survive to the age of 65 than a man in Bangladesh. Mm. So there's these sort of health disparities and they're not linked to poverty and they're not linked to even access to healthcare. They're actually sort of in now in in the population. And they're just sort of, you know, they're not things you can fix easily. So these are things that should be subjects of research, 
You know, yeah. the question is, you know, is anyone sort of taking those on and taking those seriously? African-American babies are seven to nine percent lower birth weight than white babies in America. And it's Why is that? because nobody knows. So, but it's been the same since the records began, since 1900 or 1895, I think the first records are. And they've just seen this continue all the way through. And it's not a result of access to healthcare. It's not a result of poverty. If you grow up in a poor neighborhood, it's the same sort of reduction in birth weight as if you grow up as a rich African-American. It's, it's, it's something that sort of actually seems to be in the, not the genetic makeup, but maybe the epigenetic makeup. Because when it's compared with, um, people who are genetically similar from West Africa, you're not seeing it. And some people have suggested it's actually an epigenetic consequence of, of slavery, that you know, there's just something in, wow. in mm. there that has caused stresses and has caused changes. And you know, it's an interesting question, an important question, but it doesn't get a lot of attention because mm. who's asking the question and who's doing the research? You know, and who gets the grants? I mean, you know, the really interesting things, like you know, when it was discovered that in COVID... People of colour were, were dying and becoming sicker much more than, than white people in COVID. And so the people said, oh, let's go and do some research on it. And there's a group of black researchers who ended up writing to the kind of funder saying, all the research grants have gone out and none of us have got any. So it was all given to, you know, white researchers. And they were saying, you know, this is, you know, this is directly affecting our communities. You know, we can access our communities, you know, surely better than, than you know, some distant white researchers you know surely give us a chance to at least look into this properly and generally actually you know um black researchers are getting lower grants and lower amounts of money for their research than than white academics as well so so we're seeing all these kinds of statistics so so it does sort of you know make a difference to how we're addressing problems and and scientific questions that we're asking and how we're approaching them uh, and all that kind of stuff so you know it's still needs to be solved it's still yeah. you know still a still big present, issue isn't it and yeah. uh, and i'm going to keep talking about it Okay, so let's try and answer our, our question then. Why is science so white? Well, um, I put well, it to Angela. In the West, science looks so white because of racist assumptions at the birth of modern Western science during the Enlightenment. This belief that there was a racial hierarchy and that some people were just not as capable of doing science as others. And we are only just beginning to correct that. So is yeah. that kind of thing where the teacher says, you know, you're more of a boxer, a footballer, mm. that kind of thing, and this unconscious bias that sort of has just managed to survive all these generations? Yeah, because it sounds like it should be a historical thing, a yeah. sort of historical yeah. hangover. But actually what, you, what you're saying is it's still just there. Yeah, because if you don't address it, if you ignore it, so like, you know, back in the 90s when nobody was taking any information about ethnic composition of, of the science of academia mm. then then of course it's not going to get solved because it just sort of carries on and then you know yeah. black kids don't see any black scientists so they assume science isn't their thing yeah it's really interesting that they weren't taking any information in in the 90s isn't it yeah because oh, yeah they're just not even thinking that it's an issue yeah so i mean Fortunately, I mentioned the Royal Society of Chemistry. They've just launched a massive thing where, and they're they're partnering with a lot of firms, uh, you know, a lot of big sort of chemist chemical firms to say, like, let's take you know interns, let's give um, people from minorities, people who don't have access normally to these kinds of places, you know, who can't get internships because they know somebody who who lives, you know, who works in that field. Mm. Let's make sure we we you know putting together a whole load of these internships and giving people the chance to work in these places, which is really good. So so. You you know, good black science students are getting opportunities to get experience and, and working. A new scientist actually has a, a diversity internship where the only people they'll give internships to for science journalism are from minority communities because it's so underrepresented in science journalism. So, so that's you know there are things going on. There's a couple of other things I wanted. Yeah, to Yeah, I was going to say anyone else doing some. Good yeah, stuff? so there's a, a thing called Generating Genius, which was started by this amazing man called Tony Sewell, who uh, um, he basically is taking away the sort of anti-knowledge thing in, in certain communities. So if you grow up in a certain kind of community, it's almost like that's not our thing. You don't do science because, you know, science isn't our thing. Mm. And therefore, you know, he's created this thing called Generating Genius where you get take talented students who've got, you know, not much science in their sort of cultural 
a sort of backgrounds uh, and they get hothoused and immersed in science and given opportunities to do stuff so that's generating genius and we'll maybe link to these from the the twitter yeah, page yeah 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 and another thing is the bright side trust which basically has created a team of online mentors for you know black students uh, minority students and students from poor backgrounds basically to be able to link up with people who know how to negotiate the system know you know they work in science and they can answer questions and they can take an interest in your science education and stuff and and so there are you know there are sort of positive changes you can make it's just it's taking a long time and obviously at the moment these initiatives are, are small i guess that is a positive note to end on just about yeah i think so it's like you know at least we're talking about it now yeah that, yeah, that's yeah, a, yeah yeah you know, yeah that's, you know and you know i i hope that you know people who are li- listening to this podcast might sort of say oh yeah i know kids who maybe don't have enough you know what's called science capital in their lives mm. you know uh, you know they don't have a background they don't have family members who are scientists they don't have any sort of you know scientific interest within their family and you know you can solve that quite quickly you can give them encouragement to yeah. stay in science rather than you know what happens with a lot of black students in this country certainly is that they move into the arts and humanities because they, don't, they just don't see science as their thing. Yeah, um, well, who's the guy in the States, the um, astronomer? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he was, you know, he was growing up at a time of civil rights activism in the, in the US. And he was told, don't go into science because science isn't our thing. Uh, our cult, we need lawyers. Go and train as a lawyer. And he was like, I'm really interested in science. And he just went on and, you know, and did, did a science degree and became, you know, one of the sort of best known scientists. And it's just a question of having that, yeah. you know, either self-belief or the encouragement to do it. And actually that, that visibility for someone like him is great. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what you, exactly yeah. what you need. I suppose actually what is positive is that this is a very solvable issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's not I think that it it's is. a hard, it's, it's not a hard problem to solve. No. No, you've just got to put the attention and the focus and the, and and the money, yeah, yeah, into yeah. doing it. Yeah, exactly. So you know, why is science so white? Well, it's because we haven't fixed it yet. Yeah, but we can fix yeah. it. Eureka is a stack production presented by Dr. Michael Brooks and Rick Edwards. The production team is Temi Adebayo, Katie Baxter, Luke Moore, and Charlie Morgan. Sound designed by Katie Baxter. Special thanks to today's expert, Angela Saney. Please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. It does make a massive difference. We also really love hearing from you guys. So if you have any burning questions you want us to answer, drop us an email at eureka at stack.london or you can find us, as always, on Twitter at EurekaPod. Eureka is a Stack production and part of the ACAST Creator Network. 